Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And today we're going to be talking about millennial marketing for the wine industry. And our guest is Damian Wilson, Hamill Family Chair in Wine Business at Sonoma State University. Damian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robert. And thanks, Peter, for inviting me. I'm really glad to be here. I was hoping you could give Peter and I a brief background on yourself and your career, but really focusing in on your research in wine marketing. Sure. Uh, let me give you, I'll try and give you the elevator pitch uh, background in my, my, my experience in both uh, professionally and in wine marketing. Um, the short version is I started working in uh, grocery retail, selling different forms of liquor and alcohol in, in the mid 80s. I won't give away the year specifically. It might uh, give away too much of my age. But I kind of progressed through there professionally uh, from retail to the hospitality industry, focused on being a wine steward by the early 90s. And transitioned to a sales representative by by the mid-90s at the same time I started my studies for wine business. So I collected four degrees in wine business across a decade from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s and concurrently was working at that job as a sales rep. Also worked in worked a harvest in the Adelaide Hills in Australia. And by 2007, I, um, I, I left uh, the University of South Australia and indeed uh, left uh, Australia with a PhD in, uh, in wine business. And so by that stage, I'd, I'd pretty much been working on the history and adoption of alternative closures to natural cork. So I'm specifically looking at the screw cap initiative at the time that that was being a big issue in Australia, and then focused on consumer behaviour. Specifically, uh, and with my PhD, we used a retrospective method to look back at how people come into alcohol and what the uh, process of consumption patterns are like evolving into the wine category. So my expertise kind of works in uh, the area of innovation adoption, wine consumer behaviour across the different levels of the distribution channel. I've written, written or presented uh, more than 100 uh, times on those, on those various topics, also uh, leading into digital marketing, the use of social media in the wine industry, and a little bit of uh, into wine tourism as well. So kind of I'm trying to trying to cover a fairly broad, broad brush, but specifically focused on the behaviours in purchasing and consumption of uh, wine by consumers. Sounds like we might have the right person to talk about marketing to millennials then. <laughs> well, I, well, I hope so. That's it. <laughs> if, I, if I'm here and I can't talk about that, you may, uh, I was going to say you might need someone else, but if I can't talk about that sort of thing, really, I've, uh, I've, I've pretty much wasted 11 years and four degrees. <laughs> So when we're talking about millennials, if we hone in a little bit on your broader knowledge, we need to define what they are because sometimes there's inconsistent definitions. What's the best definition for what a millennial is? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, when you're studying cohorts, you know, the groups of uh, individuals collectively put into a kind of period in time that's, um, that's distinct because of their experiences. You know, I mean, what you're really trying to capture the informative or kind of like the directive experiences which kind of define that group. And so if you look back to, you know, the, the silent generation or what used to be known as the great generation, that, that name's changed uh, over the years as well. You're looking at those who basically were their ideas and values were formed during the, I mean, during the war years. And so the baby boomers uh, are specifically in the term because that was a, a generation of, not surprisingly, there was a a boom in births following the wars, and that's, um, uh, that was when that group kind of uh, kind of grew up and developed their formative period. So I like the definition for millennials that 
demographers have, have kind of come up with uh, over time. I mean, initially uh, they had, you know, they were, I think they were initially called Gen Y or something like that, but, uh, and even Gen X used to be called latchkey children, those sorts of things. So the demographers changed the name as information comes to mind. And the latest generation, I think the most common term is Gen Z, but they used to be, were going to be called the I generation because that was the device which is kind of tied to their, tied to their period. So the traditional or the original definition of millennials, if I recall correctly, went back into kind of the late 70s and it would change between 76 to number to the early 80s. And I think the current version, as I understand it, is in reference to what is defined by uh, the Pew and Brookings Research Centres. And um, uh, Gallup also uh, adopt the same practice by referring to the cohort of those who were born between 1981 and 1996. So if you include those years as well, you're pretty much covering a 16-year period, which is, you know, any time, anywhere between like 15 to 20 years seems to be that common approach because they're, they're the people who have grown up and essentially have their attitudes and values being formed in the decades on either side of the 20, uh, change the 21st century. So just a quick clarification. So are generations organically formed by groups? Are they organically groups formed by their characteristics? Or is it usually a fixed like duration in terms of like 15, 16 years? I know that that often has probably historically been around a generational change, but I'm curious now on how do researchers look at the term? Because there's, as Peter said, there's a lot of varying definitions or the definition seems to move over time. Yeah, well, it does. It changes. Demographers, as they as they look back over time, they might change the, the years or something which defines a particular uh, category because of what's uh, uh, you know because of what's uh, uh, what's happened uh, subsequently. One of the reasons millennials were kind of defined, or there was this end period, was this reference to September 11 in 2001. You know, what I mean, so that that was one of the events which uh, they're familiar with, but the latter generation doesn't have a kind of a collective memory to it. So so even though uh, Gen Z, some uh, talk about Gen Z being born in 97 and onwards, technically they were, you know, the, the eldest were four or five when when, um, when September 11 hit. So they really, they just didn't have a memory of that event being something informative to them. Whereas everyone who grew up before that, the millennials, that's one of the things they define. So what, what tends to happen is as the uh, collective differences, whether there's something which is uh, uh, testable based on longitudinal research and you can kind of go, aha, this group has a different value structure or this group has a different degree of behaviours or they're exposed to something different, that can end up being the, um, the thing that, the, that, that labels them as a cohort. Uh, a good example being Gen Z at the moment. You know, I mean, as an Australian, I must admit, it's hard for me to say Gen Z. I keep trying to say Gen Z, but I want to make sure that the audience can follow what we're talking about here. Yeah, but for Gen Z, you, you've uh, got this situation where initially they were going to be called the I generation because they were all attached to iPhones. The problem, of course, with that is that that's also unfair to the success of Samsung as a, um, as a phone manufacturer because all of a sudden you've got this label. And I think that's one of the reasons that Gen Z, it's, it's non-specific, it's not supporting any one view or vision over another. So, But that, that name may change. I mean, there might be something else that, um, that identifies this group and they could be called the, the modern poverty struck because they came out with so much, uh, you know, so much Debt from them from their studies as they uh, as they enter the workforce. So I'm 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 not sure, but but specifically at the moment, the millennials seems to stick and it seems to define them pretty uh, pretty clearly. So in general, I was wondering what are the key characteristics that make millennials distinct and different from other generations before them or even Gen Z after them. Uh, yeah, a, a good question. I, I have to point out that uh, 
often there are characteristics or values that are perceived as being distinct, but might just be kind of marginally different. And it's like if you're doing any any form of research, you're looking for something called a significant difference. If you're, and that's something which, according to statistics, can be identified as being different from one over another. But say, for example, millennials are highly regarded and believed strong, uh, more strongly focused on social issues and, and environmental issues than other generations. And critics will turn around and go, well, hang on, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a boomer and I actually uh, hold dearly uh, environmental issues and the like. There's a, a real challenge in recognising the difference between what one generation perceives as being environmental or a social issue and another. And by testing those differences, we know that uh, millennials, both by their behaviours and values, different from their forebears for a number of reasons. Uh, for a start, they are the most educated workforce according to years of education before adopting full-time work. So you know, you've got this group that have come out and there's a high proportion of higher education uh, being taken up by them. So they were also the first generation to enter the workforce with a determination that they experienced a fulfilling career as distinct from a secure career. Now, this is a really interesting uh, point I, I, wanted to, I want to talk about a little bit. Many of us who are older We'll remember when we're being brought up, our parents would focus on how important it was to have a secure job. You know, you had to have something stable. And, and I remember when I finished high school, I mean, I failed, I failed uh, high school. And so my first job when I got out into the workforce, my first full-time job wasn't actually in wine retail, it was working in a bank. I worked in a bank for two years. Now, my grandmother was ecstatic. I was in a bank. There's no more stable job than working in a bank. I mean, I worked there for two years and they are two of the most boring, painful, difficult years <laughs> of my life. It was clearly not something that I was going to be able to stick with for any period of time. So, but that was a reflection of the eras. My parents were exactly the same. A stable job was what you wanted, you know, work in insurance, work in a bank or do something like that. And yet uh, you can see Google um, did this study really well. They identified that difference over time through searches online and the use of language. And what they found is basically about 2005, I think was the year that they actually saw the fulfilling job and terms thereof being a stronger search term than a secure job. So there really is this generational difference. You've got this situation where as millennials came in, they're not after a job that's stable. They're quite comfortable with the idea of mobility and insecurity with their, um, with their employment because they feel confident and they feel prepared to be able to move from one job to another. And so they're not looking for a secure job. They're looking for a fulfilling job. So they are the first generation to come out with this idea that it's more important to do something you love than to do something that can put a consistent degree of income on the table. So that's, that, that's a really key point that is often overlooked, I believe. They also have a significantly stronger degree of support for social and environmental issues than any other generation. That's a significant difference. That's what I was referring to earlier. They also have the largest perceptual gap between their life ambitions and their initial realities. Here's a reference to a really good, an article that was, uh, that was written, I think, 2013. I wish I could remember the author. I believe it was Unwin, but I could be wrong there. And there's a reference to the challenge that the millennials are suffering because of the expectations that were put on them in their upbringing. Concurrent with this idea about them having a fulfilling career, they were pretty much the first generation that were brought up to believe that they could do anything, go anywhere, be anything they wanted to be. They, and they were encouraged to, to both pursue and have that as being their, um, their life's goal and their life's journey. They were brought up um, believing in themselves, they could do everything, have incredible degrees of confidence and understanding. 
And not only when they hit the workforce to begin with, did they come plummeting back to earth because unfortunately work is based on a meritocracy. And that was a great word which I thought was, and when you first join the workforce, you can't jump to CEO in, uh, in, in a couple of years um, simply because you want to. There is a pathway to follow. There are people who have more experience and number stronger degrees uh, who are in front of you. And it became really, really difficult for them. So they entered the workforce having these huge expectations. The reality was it was completely different than what, um, than what has actually happened. And they hit the, um, the global financial crisis. Most of them hit it pretty soon after they entered the workforce. So not only were they struggling with the fact that, that, that if they're starting in business, they have to start out carrying drinks for their, um, for their, um, for their junior bosses to start with. They can't just become managing director of a multinational within five years of starting, um, starting the workforce, as they, as they were led to believe. But what made it worse for them, and this is really the killer, so just to the point where they were struggling with, the, with these challenges of getting into the workforce, they also suffered the era of social media. They pretty much were the generation that were exposed to social media. And so what they were seeing were all these images, everyone curates their own image of how great their life is on social media, or they go to the extremes. If they're having a good life, they're showing how magnificent it is. And so what ends up happening, they're seeing, they were built up to believe that everything was great. The reality was completely the opposite from what they were led to believe. They were sold a lie. And then not only did they um, believe that lie, when they got out into the workforce, they were seeing that everyone else around them was having this fantastic time and they were struggling. So they really did have this kind of incredible degree of concentration about how difficult their life was for them. Um, you know, I, I lumbered with, the, with a huge amount of debt, um, struggling with all the challenges they've been faced, the expectations that were put on them by their parents and, and social values around them. And it just didn't pan out that way. So, so they really suffered badly. Now, on the plus side, that's really going to serve them well in the long term. I, I think the fact that they have had to struggle and they've had to deal with this reality has, made, particularly in the global financial crisis and then coming into the workforce, I think they're going to have a, a, an incredible degree of mental hardness, but they're also likely to suffer from mental illnesses to a greater degree, certainly in the short term, whilst they get their feet and really recover for those sorts of things. So if you couple those issues with the fact that they're the generation with the largest collective student debt, there are some really good features in the long term, I think, for, uh, for millennials, but uh, they've got a lot of challenges to deal with in the short term. So what I heard is, you know, there's a number of factors that help define or influence these things at the macro level. It's you know, light, world issues that happen, like you had mentioned, some like a financial crisis, you had mentioned parenting, technology innovation, those are kind of like some of the main macro factors. It's like to your point where, where someone says, well, I'm not like that. And, and that's not like one person's not statistically relevant. Right. And so you're just, you're kind of looking for these larger factors that are then formed, but how does that then play internationally? Like, so I'm assuming that the U S Gen Z audience is different than Australia or anywhere in Europe. And, and, and would that, and, and they would have different even buying behaviors or different kind of definitions as well. Yeah, that's true. But there are a lot of um, uh, collective events that the whole world uh, experienced at the same time, the GFC being a, a great example. And I mean, I was I was living in France at the time that that hit, and I'd only recently moved to the country. So I, I, I really experienced it firsthand and the challenges that a lot of these um, these graduates were facing. And so at the time when I was uh, working as a professor at my first job in France and just trying to deal with cultural issues and how challenging it was having to learn new language, we had these graduates who were coming out into situations like Spain was an utter economic disaster. After, I mean, in the lead up to the economic crisis, uh, the 
the coast around Valencia and uh, from Valencia up to Barcelona and, uh, and they're, they're further along the Costa Brava, there were like every single square inch seemed to be having building a, a condo or some form of uh, holiday housing. And so when the crisis hit, everything just stopped. And so there are all of these kind of half-developed complexes along that coast. And it really just devastated the Spanish economy. At one point, I believe the study was done in about 2014. I can't remember the exact year, but they were following up on the situation for recent graduates with university degrees. And Spain, at the peak of the uh, worst period of the economic recession, had graduates who are 51% unemployment of graduates who had uh, come out of uh, college five years after they'd, um, uh, they'd finished their degree. So, you know, you had this uh, absolutely atrocious situation where there were just no jobs jobs for anyone. And so that really drove some of the challenges. And these days, the economy is recovering um, quite well, but you, you really do have situations that are, that are common across the globe. And those sorts of economic impacts were, uh, were pretty much felt across the globe. Yeah, and I think that has a wealth impact as well, right? If they take longer at the beginning of their career to, to make money, pay off debt, their wealth is going to be much smaller. I, I did an analysis a long time ago, actually coming out of the, or during the financial crisis, on the wine industry that showed the correlation in the U.S. of increasing price or people buying more expensive wines was related to net wealth more than more correlated to net wealth than any other factor. Net wealth lagged by a year, so it's almost like you feel richer, you pay the taxes on it, and then you know you're willing to spend up and buy a little bit more expensive wines. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a there's a common experience with the uh, with the, the wine is very tightly correlated with the, with economic um, uh, you know transitions and the like. And we know that pretty much constants is that in times of economic downturn, people don't drink less; they just spend less on what they're drinking. So that's the first thing that suffers. You know, I mean, people start tightening their belts rather than reducing their um, uh, rather than just reducing the, their access or or uh, what's it called cart sizes and those sorts of things. And we even saw it in the pandemic, even though we were, uh, many were fooled into believing that the increase in retail per unit that was spent in with the pandemic hitting seemed to be going in the opposite direction. But that was pretty easily explained by the substitution effect. If people aren't spending those dollars on on-premise, well, then they've got more dollars to spend off-premise. And mm-hmm. so they can't really drink that much more, even though there was a bit of pantry stocking at the start of it. People didn't, it was, you know, there were not only social ills associated with drinking more volume, but the, a lot of people use that experience to go, well, you know, I'm not going to be going out to, to restaurants, so I'll just spend an extra 10, 15% on what I normally would and see if I can discover something different. So you had this situation which looked different from uh, previous economic uh, crises, but it was pretty much the same if you look at the net effect based on the change and um, drop in volume of consumption with on-premise and pretty much just being uptaken by a slight increase in value on off-premise as a, as a result. Right. If, if you're going to spend $50 at a restaurant and you would have normally spent $20 at the store, spending $30, you're still saving $20. $20. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A really good analogy. And that's that's pretty much a good explanation of what's happened. To be fair, we actually don't know specifically if that's what people are thinking or has happened because we're technically still in the pandemic. I mean, we might, it may be over and we're not going to know until we have a, a good look over the numbers and we actually see what sort of trends hold and become patterns. You know, I mean, a, an economist is generally pretty good to make sure that they get three separate um, uh, incidents of something before they can call it a pattern. Just two and you've got them, you've got an indication, but uh, you don't actually know until it's consistently going in the same direction if it's going to be, um, going to be a pattern. 
pattern that holds. And, and, and hence the situation with us with the pandemic. Once we get out of it, we'll see in the next 12 months or 18 months' time if we've got something which is indicative of a change or whether indeed if people just go back or revert to the, um, to the mean the way they were uh, consuming before the pandemic. So for, for wine buying and implications for wine marketing, how do millennials differ from other generations or past generations? Specifically for, for wine buying, it's probably the key question that we're, um, that we're all asking ourselves here that uh, uh, we're, we're looking at. If you look back historically, you've got generations are pretty much defined by their consistent patterns of behaviour and the differences from subsequent generations. And if you look back at the uh, uh, the boomers, boomers buying habits, for example, they're very keen to uh, both express their interest and their uh, their willingness to have an interest in wine and to share that experience with uh, with others around them by spending uh, lavishly. You know, I mean, that was the first generation that uh, pretty much found that they had this ability to both acquire wealth and to uh, enjoy it. You know, I mean, if you look back at the uh, uh, the great generation prior to that, it was very much focused on frugality. And so wine was um, was consumed very sparingly because it tended to be a little bit more expensive, except in the countries where it was part of production. It was a it was a, a product of agriculture. So you had this situation certainly in the in the West where wine was a bit more of a luxury. And so if you go back in that generation, wine was something which just wasn't consumed very often. It wasn't well known about. It wasn't well regarded. Boomers, on the other hand, they pretty much uh, were the drivers behind a lot of the recent decades' success of the wine industry. Not only did they discover wine, but they found it was a really good way and, frankly, a relatively inexpensive way to show images of success, enjoyment, uh, focusing on hedonism and all those sorts of things. So you, you saw this situation and what they found and what they consistently do amongst their, amongst their peers is that they focus on those, those images, those, um, those blue chip and iconic wines, which illustrate success or pi- a pioneering spirit in the wine industry. So a, a great uh, example would be a brand like uh, Silver Oak. Boomers, particularly if they're meeting uh, people that they're wanting to show a sign of success, it's one of those brands that you can find on a restaurant wine list fairly widely across the US. And, and Silver Oak are very both proud of that, of that reputation and also uh, aware of what uh, benefit that provides them. On the other hand, exes tend to eschew a lot of those uh, uh, brands or traditional brands that their parents were drinking. They tried uh, things that were a little bit different. They tried, you know, the the whole Roan Rangers era was driven by X's desire for something that was a little more obscure and represented their distinction of wanting to be different and to focus on those things that, um, that they enjoyed as well as they could share with others. Millennials are a different group again in that they're focused um, uh, more squarely on the uh, on the enjoyment and the collective um, uh, the collective vision of what wine means uh, for for their generation they're still very keen and proud to be individuals but they want to consume brands that are that are more representative of uh, their group their history the experiences that they have and what wine means to them which is which is usually in conjunction with other um, other pursuits so wine brands that tend to have a an innovative approach that tend to not take themselves so seriously, that tend to be more reflective of uh, humour or something, um, something bohemian or just a little bit um, uh, off kilter compared to compared to the traditional, um, compared to previous um, uh, previous generations. So drilling into that, getting a little tactical for wine producers that may be listening to this. 
how would you, using a couple different vectors, how would you look at the importance of the winemaker or vineyard backstory, organics, or even the labels, the art on the labels? How important is that and or different are those vectors from previous generations? A few things to unpack there. Let me see if I can work through them. Uh, I'll give you a collective response and, and I'll break it down individually as well. Collectively, all of the issues that you spoke about were uh, referring to the individual. They really highlighted those kind of, that kind of social importance. There is no doubt in my mind at all that for millennials, that's a, that's a really important consideration. But I think uh, on an individual level, each one of those has a, uh, has a negligible or kind of an incremental um, um, part of uh, consideration for them. If you look, um, say, for example, you're, you're a hedonistic or um, a focused wine enthusiast from former generations, you won't see a Gen, uh, a Gen X uh, contemplating a wine that uh, isn't taken seriously or can't be regarded as a, as a, as a high-quality uh, high product, for want of a better description. On the other hand, you've got the, uh, uh, the millennials who are relatively new and they came in a bit later with their, um, with their wine consumption. They also generally started at a slightly higher price point. You've got the millennials who came in and they are, they're much more willing to accept something that reflects their values and their interests. So they are, um, they're a generation who will take that piece of uh, information into consideration, but even if it's not specifically wine relevant. In former generations, it's all about the wine, or it's more focused on issues to do with the wine. The wine being um, uh, certainly Gen X's, um, the wine has to be has to be taken seriously. They were less supportive of bigger brands, but for millennials, they are. If a big producer has a social conscience and has an interest in the um, in supporting the the grape growers, and they show a, a predisposition to want to look after the, um, their their consumers, then the millennials are just as likely to take up those big brands. Whereas former generations are a lot more skeptical of those things. Millennials are one of the uh, great um, uh, generations that are receptive to sales messages and brand building and those sorts of things as long as that brand is authentic in its approach. It's only when the consumer is considered or is only being used as a um, financial uh, resource or to feel that way, then the millennial is very quick to um, to avoid them and will, um, you know, it's like blocking them on social media. So um, uh, the analogy I've used uh, uh, in the past is that for Gen Xs and older, if you've got a brand owner walking up to you in the street with a clipboard in front of them, the Gen Xs and older will generally do what they can to cross the street to avoid getting caught up in that because they believe that they're, they're not doing them. The person who's after that information is not interested in the respondent. They're just interested in selling something. The millennial will approach that person with a clipboard in kind of at a 45 degree angle, basically um, with this idea saying, I'm interested in what you have to say, but the moment this seems like a, a sell job, I'm out of there. And that's basically the MO, the reference. Millennials believe in the potential and the relationship that businesses uh, can work in the consumer's best interest. Whereas historically and for former generations, that was perceived as being lip service without the reality to back it up. The word authenticity just resonated with me as you were explaining those different viewpoints and, and also a little bit of can cancel culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this whole, you know, millennials are really keen. They're, they're more active and they're certainly more mobile. They're keen to get behind something that they have a passion for. So, yeah, that, that authenticity means something. You know, there's nothing worse. 
There are some really good examples of uh, brands uh, around the world. I won't mention them because it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's probably best that I don't, but have been sanctioned or have been found or have been accused of behavior that goes against their interests. Uh, you know, some biodynamic producers, for example, uh, some environmental producers, and there's nothing worse than getting tarred with the greenwashing brush these days. And you'll, you tend to find that the bigger producers are much better at managing that sort of thing. They're very careful with it. I remember doing a project with students uh, when I was in France and was asking them to focus on generating a, a business plan for a brand, and there was some, and they had to do a pitch to a wine buyer from uh, from Tesco, and Tesco being the um, uh, the largest uh, wine retailer in the world at one stage, and certainly the um, uh, the largest wine retailer in the um, in the UK, and so they had this um you know situation where they could do it. One um, a group of students put together a plan which involved shipping wine from Argentina in to be bottled and processed in uh, in Canada and then coming across to the EU. And the um, uh, the wine buyer just turned around and went, you are kidding me, we'll get accused of greenwashing because the, 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 those grapes have to travel halfway around the world before they get to the um, before they get to the market. There is no way you can you can get away from that being a problem for the brand. And that that really is, you know, it's it's not just the lip service. You uh, for millennials, you're accountable based on your actions. Do you think these changes or these differences will continue over time or will millennials start buying Silver Oak as they approach 60? Ooh, yes, it's $64 million question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> uh, really, uh, you know, you're, my experience, it's based on a number, a, a really strong angle of research looking on when people develop their behaviours, their attitudes and their opinions. And there really is this kind of formative period in your teen and early adult years depending on the products. And for aesthetic products, like clothing and the like, there's a really good distinction based on genders. Women tend to develop their um, their fashion sense in their early teen years and stick to it. Men tend to wait until their early adult years before they develop a, some, a, a collective sense of fashion and, and go with it. So any of these products that have this, um, uh, what's known as aesthetic consumption, so you can be judged based on what's seen with, with your consumption, there tends to be fairly strong opinions, but they're also formed relatively early on in your experience with the, um, with the category. So my belief is, based on um, uh, based on previous experience, is that the values and expectations of uh, of uh, millennials now are going to be fairly descriptive of what their um, attitudes are going to be like as they mature. It's not to say that they won't change, but it's to say that they'll follow a fairly clear and distinct pathway. So I think you'll find that um, some of the brands that they're um, they're adhering to now, it may not be the same brand that they'll drink later on in life, but what that brand represents is something that they'll definitely um, definitely stick to. So my my thoughts on their interest in Silver Oak, if they're not drinking it now, I think um, it's unlikely that they'll be um, uh, drinking Silver Oak in the years to come, except if Silver Oak can kind of spin off into something which um, which represents what they're um, what they're interested in, so say a brand extension for Silver Oak, where you know encapsulates some um, of the values of what uh, are popular with millennials um, today, and as long as they are true to that um, to that extension, then it's something that would um, that, uh, that would certainly resonate with them. So, based on some of the stuff you said earlier, you know, I've heard that people perceive millennials as being less brand oil. Is that true? And is that true for wine? I'm I'm a really big believer that that's a it's a fallacy that it seems to keep being repeated for for some reason I don't know where it first came up from but uh, it's it's one of the things which um, which I, I have a fairly strong opinion but it's also based on uh, based on evidence are they uh, are they do they lack brand loyalty uh, no I mean there are a couple of really good um, there are a couple of really good e- examples about uh, why and how millennials 
are actually quite um, uh, quite brand loyal. Let's look back at the logic first about um, uh, brand loyalty. Millennials are a bit later to come into wine to begin with. And if you think for anyone, when you start adopting any new behavior or any new attitude to something. You start with really simple concepts and constructs and your first experience of, uh, of wine consumption, I don't know what brand it might be, but I'm going to take a, a brand that people may resonate with. Say, for example, it's, um, it's 19 Crimes. And you first drink, um, uh, that's the, the first um, wine that you drink, or it's KJ Chardonnay, or it's some something from a producer that is easy to find, is relatively, um, you know, because of its uh, ubiquity in the, um, in the wine retail environment, it's something that someone knows. And in the absence of any information, awareness of anything trumps unawareness. So for the new consumer, the millennial, they start drinking their first brand of wine, whatever it might be, and they enjoy it. If they enjoy it and they have a positive experience, the next time they go buying for it, what's the brand they look for? That same brand. So when they start out with anything, they start with a degree of brand loyalty because that's the thing that they're familiar with. It's only once they've developed a degree of familiarity that they go, I know this, I understand this, I'm familiar with this, I'll branch out and go to something else. So the logic is pretty simple. You repeat doing the same thing that you're familiar with until you move on to extensions. But in the early stages, you don't even know how or what what things mean. For the new wine consumer, they're just discovering that wine is a category. You can't talk to them about um, uh, natural wine practices or dosage regimes um, uh, during malolactic fermentation or anything like that because those concepts are five levels of complexity greater than what they're trying to encapsulate as the idea of wine. So when you're new to the categories, millennials are, most of them are still just learning what wine is. They don't know things about grape varieties. They barely understand the concept of style until they've had um, sufficient repeated experiences that clarify those issues in their mind for them. So it might be to do with the sweetness of the wine, the, the, the weight of the wine, the colour of the label, whatever it might be. And then as they get experience with it, they start branching out based on those things that they understand and use those concepts to extend into different areas. So the logic for anyone when they're starting out in the category is that they are loyal to begin with and then as they get more experiences their consumption choices or their product choice um, their product options at the point of sale instead of being one over one it becomes one over x with x being that number of different options you've tried or are familiar with or are willing to consume that logic pretty much explains why millennials start out loyal and then go the opposite direction the other thing is this is a um, this is a group of consumers that are very proud of and support those brands that support them. You might have heard of um, Supreme. Supreme is a brand. I mean, you know, Supreme makes a house brick, which would be otherwise worthless in isolation, worth a heap of money because someone wants it because it's got Supreme written all over it. Their brand represents their identity and their individualism. And from amongst a group of um, collectivists, that's really something that's important to them. And wine's no different. So the wines that they drink represent them. So they, they do have a degree of loyalty. And I think if you look at them, you know, a, a really good example, if you've been to uh, Shadow Diana or Buena Vista State um, on a weekend, you can see that they definitely have a lot of um, millennials as, as, a part of their, um, as a part of their category. I mean, I suspect this, um, this, this fallacy about them being non-brand loyal is because they have a really low wine club sign-up rate. And, and there are any number of reasons for that sort of thing, but a lot of it would be to do with both the cost of entry 
to get there to begin with. And also the fact that they will sign up for those sorts of things, but only once they're convinced that the brand is um, is interested in their best interest. And that may take a couple of visits to a winery before they'd considered doing something like that. And, and frankly, every time I go to a, a wine producer, one of the great appeals about them are working in the US for me was the very brilliant focus on business success and commercial representation. Uh, but unfortunately, one of the side effects is a focus on salesmanship. And that tends to mean that whenever you walk into a tasting room, every tasting person is desperate to try and get you to sign up to a wine club. And that just makes the millennials a lot more reluctant to do so because they haven't, um, they're not sure if the brand represents their interest yet. So I think that probably explains a lot to do with why they are perceived as being um, not brand loyal, whereas in fact they, um, they, they really are. And if you look at their online um, buying behaviour, uh, certainly as a share of their category requirements of wine, they're far more brand loyal than other generations. So I'm curious on what price points are millennials buying wine at? I mean, obviously it's a 15, 16 year range, but is there is there a sweet spot if you're a wine brand that if you have something that is all, it is going to be targeting for millennials? Yeah, the, the, the numbers, the limited numbers that I've looked at, and I remember this presentation at, uh, uh, by uh, Mike Osborne of wine.com. I think it was 2019. You know, I mean, 2020 is almost a blur now. It's, um, I can't remember if it was 2019 or 2020 that he put the numbers up. But I remember him showing that the millennials uh, online uh, through that platform, they not only spend twice as much on average as the, um, as the average uh, grocery retail environment, but they were the highest spending by unit compared to any other, um, any other generation. Now, you're talking the, the low 30s, high 20s there um, across all generations. So there's really, you know, I mean, you're splitting hairs between whether it's, uh, whether it's $31 or $30, that price point online. But uh, when you compare that to that number price point in stores, you know, I mean, they're looking at them. Uh, I think that you're still looking at the lower price points for them. So less in the under $10 bracket, but 10 to 15 is generally a, um, a pretty good sweet, sweet spot for them. They don't want to be seen as being um, uh, low value, high consuming consumers, but they're also more risk averse and want to get their experience. And so that tends to hit the, um, the 10 to $15 sweet spot at the grocery retail environment. And I'm assuming as you look at the age range, as they get older and they amass more wealth, that that purchasing power goes up. Yeah, that's 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 consistent. That's one of the things which you start to see as they, get, as they consume more and become more familiar with it. And the best thing wine can do for them, for millennials to appeal to them, is to make sure that their experience every time they consume wine is positive. Because the way we get people into wine is by a frequency of exposure and positive reinforcement during consumption. They're the two consistent elements that encourage someone to become a wine consumer uh, over time. And the problem that we've had or the difficulty we've had in wine, it's one of the side effects of premiumization. As wine has become more expensive, it becomes much more difficult to acquire new customers because the cost of entry starts getting higher. And also it becomes more difficult to kind of trade up as the average price increases. So what tends to happen is you've got those who are already established in the category coming up with that price because they're familiar with it and they understand it. But if you, you can't get new consumers in or it's more difficult to do so, the higher the cost of entry and the more difficult it is to, um, uh, to trade up. So that um, tends to mean that there's a higher expectation on each experience. And so that experience, um, uh, particularly with millennials, they become more discriminating and they start asking themselves when they go out for, um, uh, when they go out for dinner with friends, do they really want to spend $15 on a glass of Cabernet or, or are they actually much more comfortable having a couple of beers and knowing that's all they're going to drink? So related to the premiumization, what do you think the implications are for the like $100 Napa cab? Like how does that, how does that resonate with this generation? 
I'd be very concerned if I was a high-end Napa, Napa cab producer in the long term. I'll, I'll issue a couple of um, disclaimers on that statement um, uh, for reasons that'll become uh, that'll become obvious. I mean, specifically, Napa in general. If you look at the results of awareness of any wine region in this country, and when I last looked, there was about two hundred and fifty uh, registered uh, AVAs. So I mean, that's a lot. How many of those can even the average wine enthusiast rattle off? I mean, I, I can barely rattle off five off the top of my head. And if I thought about it long and hard, I might be able to come up with 20. But the reality is that's 250. Now, that's really tough. Napa has the advantage of being the best known region and that awareness trumps everything else. So that gives them some uh, advantage over other competitors, but could also make Napa Valley um, producers complacent because they believe, well, everyone's always going to always going to know Napa. So that's going to give us some advantage. The other thing is that iconic wines don't really suffer a lot with changes in the economy or trends over time. It's one of the sad uh, realities of the wine sector. Of the 10,000 producers that we've got, uh, or more than those small producers in, in the US, you've got this situation where everyone looks at the, uh, looks at the example of the Screaming Eagle or Kistler or, you know, some sort of iconic, um, uh, iconic uh, wine producer, and they all think they're going to mirror them. The fact of the matter is they don't. There are, there are a few producers that sell out of everything and have um, a loyal customer base, but they still have to refresh their customer base over time. They can't just keep the same producer, uh, same consumers because the consumers, they still churn even if it's just to a small degree. So those iconic wines, even though they suffer with changes in the economy, they suffer very little compared to others. So the blue chip wines are likely to continue to be supported by millennials as they develop their interest in high-end wines. But that interest in high-end wines in general is going to come later because they started later. They're also slower to develop their um, their financial stability, which means wine is going to be one of the last things that comes on and um, comes into their comes into their discretionary spending. So that's going to be hard for them. The other uh, issue I'd put out there, or the other disclaimer I'd say, is that any Napa Cabernet producer that invests time and effort in appealing to millennials is likely to be well rewarded. But that effort can't be tokenism. It needs to be a genuine interest. And that would mean that you, the, the current model of eye-wateringly high wine tasting room prices, uh, coupled with a mandatory wine club sign-up, and that's just not going to cut it for um, for trying to initiate a connection with a sceptical generation about wine. So if, you, I, I, if I was a Napa Cab producer, I'd, in the short term, you're busy listening to this and going, I've got nothing to worry about. You know, I'm looking at my um, uh, bottom line and going, well, Went, got through the pandemic, how hard can the rest of it be? Well, it's not going to get any easier, that's for sure. Hey, listeners. Oops, we did it again. We had so much good information with Damian Wilson talking about millennials and wine that we ended up breaking this up into two episodes. So we're going to end episode one right here. And if you can join us next week, you can join part two as we talk about marketing to millennials with Damian Wilson from Sonoma State University. Look forward to having you join us again. Cheers. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.